Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring sermons drawn from our pastoral staff and various guest preachers. Today, we are going to be looking at that final step that we have been, or that final skill we have been talking about. We've talked about prayer sharing, we have talked about storytelling, we have talked about um, pain sharing, we have talked about um, naysaying, and today we're looking at community building. We're going to be turning to the book of Esther, and we're at pretty much the very end of Esther at this point. Um, If you are new to the church, you haven't read the book of Esther, I promise you, you're not alone. It's one of the books in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And it's often said by Jewish scholars that when all fades away, all that will stand will be the law and Esther. It's a very powerful book in the life of the Jewish faith, and it has continued to be a powerful book in the life of our faith as Christians as well. So I hope you will come with me in reading along Esther chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Esther is the queen. They have just spared their community from genocide, and this is what happens. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, wearing royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a mantle of fine linen and purple, while the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, the Jews there was light, for the Jews there was light and gladness, joy and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict came, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a festival and a holiday. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. God, we pray that we will hear your truth and that your truth will change us. We pray that you will open our hearts and that with open hearts we will go into the world with love, seeking community, working together, not for our own good, but for yours. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Friends, I have an important question for all of us. When we come here to church, when we stand together in worship, or when we join in the courtyard for donuts and coffee, when we sit together over a shared meal at Sunday suppers, or come to participate in a class that is led by Eric or by Ron White, when we come to church, are we expecting to be part of a community or part of a crowd? I want to tell you a story. Before my family and I moved here to San Marino in 2018, we lived in El Paso, Texas for five years. And now it's said by some that El Paso is the unwanted stepchild of the Southwest. It's not really claimed by Texas. It's not part of New Mexico. It's very different from its sister city, Juarez, Mexico. 
But my family and I loved our time there, in part because it's one of only 10 cities in the United States that gets 300 days of sunshine a year, in part because it does have unbeatable Mexican food. I will defend that statement. And mostly because of the incredible heart and generosity of the people that live there, of their tight identity as a community. El Paso is the 20th largest city in the United States, and it's part of the largest bilingual, binational workforce in the Western Hemisphere. Prior to the pandemic, people would regularly cross the border for work, to visit family, to go shopping. In fact, most Tuesdays, my husband Andy would walk across the border for tacos and a Mexican Coca-Cola for lunch before coming back and being at his desk within the hour. Now, if you've been watching the news recently, you know that the border has functioned under different rules since the pandemic began. But this is really far from the first time that El Paso has been confronted by challenges and disagreements at its border. Just nine years ago, you may remember hearing about the unaccompanied minor crisis. Teenagers, mothers, children were fleeing death and violence in Central America, where gangs were specifically targeting teens and young kids in a murder spree. The numbers at the border had become overwhelming, and since many youth were leaving not accompanied by a guardian, the government, the United States government, was really struggling to know what to do. And so as unaccompanied minors started to fill these detention centers that had been created for adults, the government's first solution was to process the men, women, and children who could be processed, who could be assigned court dates, and to send them on their way, to not detain them. And so one day, a bus full of these legally processed asylum seekers was taken from the processing center and was promptly unloaded at the bottom of the road where Andy and I lived. 57 people dropped off on a street corner with no possessions, no shoelaces or belts, they had been confiscated as weapons, and a plastic bag full of paperwork written in English. As you can imagine, the locals in El Paso didn't find this to be acceptable. The average household income in El Paso is $69,000 a year, and now we were finding these small neighborhoods were suddenly home to 60 homeless immigrants who were trying to find their way to their court dates that were scheduled to happen all over the country, and they were supposed to get there without any money, any phones, computers, any shelter to rest in, any showers to clean up in. Now, I don't know how most communities would respond when they were faced with this kind of a situation. It'd be interesting to wonder, what would we do if we found 60 people dropped off at the corner of Virginia and Huntington with no English language skills, no money, no plan. I don't know what most communities would do, but I can tell you what El Paso did. Nearly overnight, multiple organizations began to band together. Nonprofits, churches, schools, individual families, they each started to communicate and reach out to one another to share resources. 
Together, we opened five short-term centers that offered showers, translators, clothes, food, and transport to airports and buses so that asylum seekers could get to those scheduled court dates. In only one month of operation, we managed to move 2,500 people through the city of El Paso at no expense to the local, state, or federal governments. It was really a magnificent feat. But I have to tell you that it wasn't professional or glorious or really even that highly organized. No one was telling anyone what to do from the top down. It was just the community doing what the community does. It was them living out a shared identity with little regard for their personal politics or for their rights or for their preferences. In the, in the words of one of my conservative congregants at the time who was donating items to the effort, she said, I don't like them being here, but they are in my town now. El Paso lived as a community, my friends, not as a crowd. Because a community is a company of people who live out a shared identity. A crowd is just an aggregation of individuals who happen to be in the same geographic space. Now, the story of Esther is also a story about a community that was committed to its shared identity and values and acted accordingly, particularly in the moment where it was faced with the greatest risk. Our scripture passage for this morning takes place after a particularly treacherous and scary time in the life of these ancient Jews. While the Jews were living in a land that was not their own, the city of Susa, one of the king's officials named Haman concocted a plan for their genocide. At the time, Esther was queen. She had been chosen for a role from a pageant of women out of her beauty and charm. But her given name, Esther's given name, was Hadassah. It's a Jewish name because she was a Jew. But nobody in the palace at the time knew that. She had been raised by her cousin Mordecai, who still sat outside of the palace gates each day, long after she had been received as queen. One day, Mordecai overheard Haman's plot to kill all of the Jews, and he warned Hadassah, who found herself in an impossible choice. Would she risk being killed by the queen for requesting an audience with him in trying to stop Haman's plan? Or would she risk the genocide of her people? Would she risk being killed and so possibly offering no help at all to her community? They could still be killed if she was. Or would she her allow her community to be murdered while she continued to live in secrecy? It was an impossible choice, and Hadassah knew that she couldn't make this decision on her own. And so what she did is she reached out for her community to help her. She asked all of the Jews who were living in Susa to pray and fast, which they did. And with the strength and support of her community behind her, Hadassah went to the king, not once but twice, who spared her life both times. And through a plot that was crafted in patience and perseverance, Hadassah revealed Haman's plan to the king 
and saved her community. And that's where our scripture passage picks up today, at the very end, where everything has been made right. Because Hadassah had succeeded, they had all succeeded. We see in our scripture passage that Mordecai is being honored for his courage in communicating with Hadassah and coordinating all of the Jews. But when we continue to read on, we find out that this is not a celebration of Mordecai. This is not a celebration of Hadassah. It was about the community as a whole, surviving what was certain death in large part due to how God worked through them as a company of people committed unwaveringly to their shared identity. Today, one of the most revered holidays in the Jewish tradition is Purim. And Purim retells this story of Hadassah and Mordecai and the Jews. It's an annual feast in the early spring. It happened just this past March. And it celebrates community with abandon. They exchange gifts, they give charity to the poor, they are encouraged to celebrate with food and drink until they don't remember what they're celebrating anymore. One commentator describes the holiday by saying, life together is celebrated as a joyous gift, snatched unbelievably from the gates of death and hell. A people who had faced the possibility of not being are emphatically alive. During Purim, community is not explained in historical terms. It's not analyzed in sociological terms. It is simply enjoyed in language and rituals and food and laughter of a festival, where joy is not seen as an individual stroke of luck, where joy is a community participation in God's work. In other words, during Purim, they recognized that they could be damned by themselves but not saved by themselves. They recognized that it was through their commitment to being God's community that God saved them. Friends, this is incredibly good news that when we are faced with challenges that we cannot individually overcome, God works through the community that we are part of to do unimaginable things, near impossible things. But here in the United States, we have a bit of a challenge. Our commitment to individuality in the United States often stands at odds with the Bible's commitment to community and collectivism. Our society reveres the journey of the Lone Ranger, the courage of Robinson Crusoe. We love people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. We love the wild success of the few. I heard a story about how the United States national anthem is the only national anthem that is expected and best sung by an individual. It's very difficult to sing in community. We in the United States really have a challenge. We are often discouraged from relying on others. We are often uh, asked to not trust 
that the bonds that we have with those of us in the community that we share are strong enough to catch us when we stumble. And so as Christians in the United States, we are called by Scripture and by the Spirit to make a choice, a hard choice, to make a choice between the communal values of our faith and the individualistic values of our society. As another commentator said, the myth of the self-sufficient individual permeates the American self-consciousness. When these individuals get together in crowds, this myth is simply accentuated, for the crowd is not a company but an aggregate, a multiplication of individuals rather than an organic body. Even in the crowd, each person is an individual. Which is why, my friends, Scripture and the Spirit ask us time and time again, before we identify ourselves as Americans, before we identify ourselves as Republicans or Democrats, before we affirm that we are either capitalists or activists or anything else, we have to ask ourselves, are we here to be part of a community or of a crowd? Are we here to live out our identity as God's people or to reinforce that tempting but false narrative? that each man can be an island. Are we here, my friends, to live together or to die alone? One of my favorite stories about this church is that community has always been at the center of our name. We have always been a group of people who have come across differences different denominational commitments, different political commitments, different social commitments, and come together as a community to work together for God's company. Friends, I hope that you have a clear answer in your heart. We're not here to be part of a crowd. We're here to be part of a community. Let's live it. Amen. You have been listening to a production of San Marino Community Church. Find our worship services on YouTube or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify.